Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this book of Leviticus, uh, it's a difficult book and we need your help. It's an amazing book, but it makes for difficult reading, and we know that you know that, and yet this is your word. I pray that as we consider the details that you have preserved in Scripture, the way that you instructed Moses uh, to teach and instruct Israel how to worship, that you will teach us about the gospel, you will help us to see Jesus with greater clarity, and that we will come to love this book, come to love the gospel in this book, and that we would never again make fun of this book, uh, but we would desire to show people just the amazing things that you have done in and through your history and your scripture. So God, please help us. Help me. Um, I myself am tired, uh, but I'm excited to be here, and I pray that you would strengthen my mind, help me to be clear of speech for the sake of these men who have given of their time uh, to be here and sacrificed uh, to prepare to be here. So God, we lean on you, we depend on you, uh, we love you, and we, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get into Leviticus exactly, I think it's important that we review, I'm just going to move this back. Can you guys see the screen? I, sorry, Peter, you're going to have to fix all this, but hopefully all the cords are connected. Um, so it's important we review the, the tabernacle. You'll remember in the second half of the book of Exodus, God has brought Israel out of slavery to Mount Sinai. And that, the second half of Exodus is all about Mount Sinai, from Exodus 19 through to 40, they're at Mount Sinai, and they don't leave Sinai until Numbers 10. So if you're thinking big picture about the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, they land at Sinai in Exodus 19, they leave in, in Numbers 10, that's the central part of the Torah, a lot of important things happen at Mount Sinai. God gives two things to his people at Mount Sinai, what are they? They, yep, the Ten Commandments, so that would be the law. And the second thing that he gives to his people? The tabernacle. So we don't often think of law and tabernacle as gifts, but that's exactly what they are. These are gifts that God is giving to his people. Why? Because it's, it's through the law and the tabernacle, which is contextualized within the grace of God's deliverance from slavery, that you have covenant with God. And this is on a big macro level picture, this is all about um, the new covenant. We are delivered from our slavery to sin, and we enter into covenant where God writes the law on our hearts. We're made obedient from the heart. We're transformed in our very nature, circumcision of the heart. Like, there's a lot of different ways to say it. And we have access to the presence of God. In fact, we become a traveling tabernacle. So, so these are all foreshadowing the gospel in, in a powerful way. That's why they're central to the Torah. You get everything you need in Christian theology in the first five books of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is just helping us to understand the first five books of the Bible. So they come to Mount Sinai, and we went over this really quick a couple of weeks ago. And you'll remember, Moses is invited up to the top of the mountain, right? So 
I want us to begin to think, especially as we go through the Torah of spatial theology. Moses is on the top. This is the holy, holy place. And only Moses is allowed to be on the top of the mountain. Now, there's a couple of places where it seems like maybe Aaron is there. And then other times it, it seems like, well, only Moses can go up there. So was Aaron almost at the top and not quite at the top? I, I don't have an answer for you tonight. If you want to look into that and, and tell us next week, that would be great. But for sake of tonight, Moses is at the top of the mountain. That's where God is in manifesting his glory. That would be the holy, holy place. And then we're told, God says, tell everyone else not to come onto the mountain because the mountain is holy. So Moses gets to go to the top. Nobody can go onto the mountain. And then you have the 70 elders who do come up onto the mountain. So there's, there's these sort of double, double standards. You have nobody except for the 70. You have only Moses, maybe Aaron. But the whole point is you have the top of the mountain is holy, holy. The mountain is holy. And then you have the rest of the people down at the base of the mountain. And, and they are to remain clean. If you're to go outside of the camp into the wilderness, you have unclean. So spatially, you have this theology of as you climb up the mountain, you're getting closer to God. So top of the mountain, holy, holy. Mountain, holy. Base of the mountain, clean. Out in the wilderness, unclean okay those are the categories of reality that we have established in the book of exodus now that's great if you stay at mount sinai but what happens is god says you're not going to stay here i'm taking you to the promised land but what god has established categorically this spatial theology of sinai he says i want you to take that with you how do you take that with you you have the tabernacle so remember you we start over here in the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. So I'm in the tabernacle. I'm in the tent. I'm, I'm in the Holy of Holies. And if I go through the curtain, there's a curtain here, then I'm in the tent of meeting in the holy place. And in the holy place, on the north side, you have the table of bread. On the south side, you have uh, the, the candelabra. And then you have the altar of incense right before the curtain. Then I come out of the tent of meeting and I'm in the courtyard. You have to be clean to get into the courtyard to bring your sacrifice. And if I go out of the tabernacle and I'm in the camp, I, I sh still need to be clean. And if I'm unclean, I need to go out into the wilderness. So what, what we need to see with the tabernacle is it's a traveling Mount Sinai. It's also, we talked about this, Adam was in Eden Eden is equivalent to the top of Mount Sinai or the Holy of Holies. It's two times holy. It's where God meets with humanity and he manifests his glory. Outside of Eden, you would have had the rest of the world, which would have been holy. God created it good. So God, Adam was charged to work the garden, keep the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the face of the earth. Excuse me and then to extend the boundaries of Eden. In other words, make the holy world holy, holy. Okay? And so on. So the world was holy. There was no other category. But after the fall of humanity, then the world became unclean. So now, the whole point is, we're, we're trying to get into the presence of God, but our sin is continually taking us into an unclean place. So just as Adam was exiled from Eden, the Holy of Holies, 
to which direction on the compass? East. He's exiled to the east, so God sets up the tabernacle, and the high priest, or the priest, or the person bringing their sacrifice, but let's go with the high priest on the Day of Atonement, which we'll look at today, is traveling from east to west. And as you go from east to west, you go from wilderness to camp to courtyard to holy place to holy of holies. And on the Day of Atonement, I'm giving you this already, it was the middle of the book, but the high priest is back spatially, from a theological point of view, back in Eden. So that's, that's what you have to know. The tabernacle is a portal to Eden. Now, more than that, last thing, and this is all review, but crucial. There, the holiest you can get on earth is holy, holy. Now, God exists not in this creation, right? He's holy, entirely separate and in Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted you know and what do the, the seraphim say as they fly around the throne of God holy 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 is that about God or is that about where God dwells both he is the three times holy God in the three times holy place and so this idea of stepping down out of the three times holy place into the holy of holies. That's how as far as God goes in manifesting his glory. And then there's these buffer zones. They're like decontamination chambers. That as you're getting closer to the three times holy God in the holy of holies on earth, you have this holy place which is like a buffer zone. Then you have uh, the courtyard where you have to be clean and the camp where it's clean. And that's like no man's land where it's another buffer zone. And then you have the unclean wilderness and world beyond the world of the gentiles so really helpful if you think about god with spatial theology and because of our sin we're constantly being dragged this direction east like with adam but our goal is to get west spatially theologically into god's presence how are you going to do that that's the gospel the gospel is how do we get from the wilderness back to Eden, and not just Eden, but to the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the book of Exodus ends with uh, they have constructed the tabernacle. We have this portal back into Eden, back in, uh, actually into the holy, holy, holy place where God dwells. So it's, it's wonderful if you have a portal to take you back into the presence of God. And yet, at the end of the book of Exodus, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we're told the Holy of Holies becomes the footstool of God. Look at verse 35, or just listen. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, this is intriguing because Moses was allowed on the top of Mount Sinai. Why can't he be in the Holy of Holies, which is the the equivalent of the top of Mount Sinai. Well, he can't. God's making a point. Not even Moses is permitted to approach God through the tabernacle. That's the end of Exodus. That's a real problem. Because it's great to have a tabernacle, but if you can't use it, then it's of no good to you. Now, that's how Exodus ends. If we go to the beginning of the book of Numbers, this is how the book of Numbers begins. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, 
in the tent of meeting. So at the end of Exodus, Moses can't get into the tent of meeting. At the beginning of Numbers, Moses is in the tent of meeting, and God is speaking to him. It seems like something has changed from the end of Exodus to the beginning of Numbers. That is, Moses has access to God in the tabernacle. Now those two bookends tell us everything you need to know about the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus tells us how does Moses get into God's presence. In other words, the book of Leviticus is a user's manual for how to operate the tabernacle. And that's crucially important if you want to get back into God's presence. So with that in mind, Moses represents Israel, and Israel represents all the nations of the earth. Think, Think that through. If Moses can't get into the tabernacle, then Israel can't get into the tabernacle. If Israel can't get into the tabernacle, then the nations can't get into the tabernacle. Because Israel, we found out in in Exodus 19, is to be a kingdom of priests. What that means is God has set apart Israel to be a priesthood for the nations. We're going to come back to that as we go through the Old Testament. So Moses' inability to get into the tabernacle is a problem for all the peoples of the world. And his entrance into the tabernacle at the beginning of Numbers is good news for all the people of the world. So with that in mind, that's crucially important. Let's take a look at the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus here, I want to contextualize it within the entire Torah. At the beginning of Torah, as we said, Adam is created, the universe is good, there is no sin, he is in Eden, in the two times holy place where God visits from time to time. At the end of the Torah, we have Israel on the western shore of the promised land, or sorry, on the eastern shore of the promised land, about to go west across the Jordan River. So Adam, because of his sin, is exiled to the east of Eden. At the end of the Torah, the the people of of God, Israel, his holy nation, are sitting on the edge, the boundary, the western boundary, or the eastern boundary, sorry, I keep getting that wrong, and it's crucially important, on the eastern boundary of the promised land, and they cross through the Jordan River into the promised land. Typologically, they're going home to Eden. Interesting, though, that the Torah ends not with them going into the promised land, meaning when Moses wrote that, his people were not yet back into Eden. Okay? So that's the big plot of the Torah. Booted out of Eden, booted out of paradise, and then God comes up with a plan to get them back into paradise. So that's the Torah. Now, the way it's set up with five books, you have a chiasm. Peter introduced us to chiasm a couple weeks ago. So you have Genesis and Deuteronomy on the outer edge. Then you have Exodus and Numbers just inside that. And then the central book, which is the most important book in some ways, the most significant, that is, this is where you're going to get the meat of the Torah, is the book of Leviticus. It's right in the middle. So what this tells us, just the very pattern of the way these, how these books are set up is, how are we going to get back into Eden? How are we going to get back into paradise? The, the key is in the book of Leviticus. Makes it important. 
Now, the book of Leviticus, we're going to see, is also established chiastically. So you have, on the outer edge, you have sacrifices in sacred time. That is, how is it that God wants us to approach him? He, he says, well, you have certain, certain rituals that you need to do with sacrifices, and you have certain rituals that I want you to, to do with time. Then inside of that, we have two sections about the priesthood, and inside of that, we have laws about whole, of purity and holiness. And in the very middle of the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, you have the Day of Atonement. Now, what's amazing about the Day of Atonement is that chapter 16 is also a chiasm. And I just don't have time to go through it, but it's, it's, it's beyond, it's in your notes, and it's, it's beyond uh, dispute. It's a clear chiasm. And the middle of the chapter of, uh, the middle of chapter 16 of Leviticus is verses 16 to 20a. And do you know what's happening in those, in those verses? Aaron the high priest is in the Holy of Holies making atonement for the people. So the middle verses of the middle chapter of the middle book of the Torah, which is all about how are we going to get back into Eden, you have the high priest in the Holy of Holies making atonement for the people with the blood of a bull and a sacrificial goat. And then in those verses, he moves out from the Holy of Holies and he atones for the whole tabernacle. And he comes all the way out to the bronze altar and puts blood on it. That's at the very middle. That's the heart of the Torah, and that's the heart of the gospel. How are we going to get back to paradise? Well, it has to do with a great high priest making atonement with his own blood. This is all very intentionally structured by God. So that's the big picture. With that in mind, let's take a look at the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is divided into four major sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 15, and this is, these 15 chapters are all about Israel's cult. Now, the word cult, we use it to mean apostate religion. That's one way to use the word, but the word cult actually just means religious practice. So this is the religious practice, the cultic worship that God had commanded his people. And I wanted to use the word because I was looking for C words. <laughs> cult. But that's actually, if you do the reading, any, any scholastic reading, any academic reading that you're going to do uh, on, on the Old Testament, cult is not a dirty word. It just means Israel's religious practice. And, and so that's the first 15 chapters. Then chapter 16 is the center of the book. That's the Day of Atonement. And then you have rules about the community life of of Israel in chapters 17 through 25. Now, so from chapters 1 through 25, this really is the book of Leviticus. And then you have this fourth section on covenant in chapters 26 and 27. You have a chapter on blessings and curses, which are going to be repeated in Deuteronomy. So we're not going to talk about them today. We'll revisit the, the blessings and curses when we go through the book of Deuteronomy. And then you have the last chapter, uh, chapter 27, on vows. Both these chapters are really appendices to the book of Leviticus, and the chiasm doesn't include them. We're going to focus our time on the first 25 chapters of the book. 
So before I proceed, I guess I should just point out chapters 1 to 7 are bracketed by chapters 23 and 25. So 1 to 7 are about sacrifices. That's paralleled by the ritual use of time in chapters 27 and, or 23 to 25. And then inside that, so this is the chiasm that we're talking about, we have chapters 8 through 10, which address the priesthood, which is paralleled by chapters 21 and 22, which are rules about the priesthood. Then inside that, we have chapters 11 through 15, where you have rules about purity, so clean and unclean, paralleled by chapters 17 to 20, rules and regulations about holiness and profanity. We're going to see how those fit together. And inside all of it is the central chapter of the Torah, the Day of Atonement. So before we proceed, any questions about the, just the macro structure of the book? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, good point, Scott. So it, the book is called Leviticus in English anyway because it's about the, the tribe of Levi and the rules given to the tribe of Levi. Uh, the focus, you're right, when we get to chapters 8 to 10 and 21 to 22, focuses really on Aaron and, and his uh, high priesthood and the lineage that proceeds from him. So I, I don't have a good answer for you. Yeah, well, he, yeah, that's true. He is a Levite. Like yeah, Aaron and Moses are from the tribe of Levi. That's true. Yeah. No, and the Hebrew name is different. I can't remember what it is right now. Any other questions about the structure? Pardon me? Oh, yeah, it's the beginning of the first three words of the book. Yeah. So in Hebrew, the, the name of this book is The Lord Called. Good point. Any, uh, any other questions? All right, let's take a look. So we're going, to, we're going to work our way to the center. So we're going to start with sacrifices. Then we're going to look at sacred time. Then we're going to look at priesthood and priesthood. Then we're going to look at purity and holiness. And we're going to end in the middle. So you see how that works? We're working from the outside in. So let's begin by taking a look at sacrifices. This makes for some dry reading when, when you think about the fact, well, we don't bring sacrifices to church. We don't come with goats or rams or bulls or sheep or, or uh, unleavened bread or cakes or waffles or anything like that. We don't, we don't have that. So for the first seven chapters, all, all we're getting through is a list of, of rules about sacrifices that mean nothing to us, except that they ought to mean something to us. Because... What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Well, it's these five sacrifices that, that will tell us. The, the, these are the sacrifices that Jesus came to fulfill. Now, to add to the redundancy, for, to make for a difficult reading, you get the, the five sacrifices listed twice. So you read about all five sacrifices, and then you get all five sacrifices again. Now, the order of them is slightly different. So the first time you read about the sacrifices, you'll read about the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, in that order. 
And then the second time you, you read them, you'll, you'll see that the offering takes the peace offering, which is third in the first round, and makes it fifth. So why the different order? The different order is because the first time we get the order, we get the three offerings at the front that are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So Leviticus starts with, these are the three offerings that are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. And then you have the sin offering and the guilt offering, which are not a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Why, why are they not a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Well, it's because they, um, uh, they deal with our sin. They, they deal with the problem. Now, I see a lot of you scribbling like mad. You have all of these notes. So just print them off. And if you don't, if you don't have a printer, just talk to me and I'll print them for you. I just would hate for you to miss out on, on what I'm saying because you're trying to get the information down. I have 36 pages of notes on Leviticus for you. It's on the website. You can print it off. So I appreciate that you want to be engaged. And if that helps, then go ahead and write. And you maybe you want to add some notes. That's fine. But you don't need to get this, all of these words written down because I'm going to go far too fast for you to keep up. So, th so the first order just says these are three offerings that are pleasing to the Lord, the pleasing aroma, and then you have to deal with the sin and the guilt. The second time you get the offerings, you get the theological order of the offerings. So if you were to offer the, 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 the sacrifices in order, theologically, as you're, you're moving toward God, and, and you're moving toward a fellowship with God, it would be in this order. So let's, let's, let's do that order, the theological order of how you would offer your sacrifices in order to be in a right relationship with God. It starts with a burnt offering. A burnt offering, again, in your notes, I have all the details of all the different animals and all the ritual and all of that. I'm not going to go over that now, but right now, the, the burnt offering, in short, is you take whatever animal it is that you bring, based on how much money you earn or, or what position you have in society, and you burn the whole thing. And, and this is a, uh, the, the meaning or the function of this is atonement. The burnt offering is always associated with atonement. What is atonement? It's a covering. You, this, this provides you with a blanket covering. Uh, humanity is in this destroyed relationship with God. We're exiled from God. We're at war with God. The burnt offering is a general sacrifice that educates or, or teaches us about atonement, that someone has to die for your sins. And in the burnt offering, you, you see that someone has to be entirely consumed because of your sins. And so the idea there is atonement and propitiation. That the, the animal that is offered is propitiating God's wrath against you. The next offering is the grain offering. And the grain offering always accompanies a burnt offering. And the grain offering is a response of devotion by the worshiper to God. So, so after atonement is made, and it's a very general kind of uh, theological category, the burnt offering, you, you offer a grain offering, which is like giving uh, a percentage of your earnings. A grain offering represents what you have earned because they're an agricultural society. And so you devote yourself to the Lord. You respond to the propitiation by devoting yourself, and the token of your devotion is a portion of your earnings. Yes? Yes. 
Yes, you have to drain the blood from the animal for all of these. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to get through Leviticus, though, I can't go to that level of detail. So purification, uh, or the sin offering, is the next uh, offering, theologically, as we're moving through. So you have a sin offering and a guilt offering. There's a lot of discussion in the scholarship of what's the difference between a sin offering and a guilt offering. The best way that I can understand it is the sin offering is is looking at sin from a, a medical point of view, a medical paradigm, that when we sin, we we are diseased theologically. We pollute ourselves. We are unclean. We need to be purified. We need to be cleansed. We need to be disinfected. So when we sin, we pollute ourselves and we pollute the environment around us. So that's, that's the sin offering. The guilt offering deals with restitution. When we sin, we go into debt. We have a sin debt. We, we have a debt to the person that we sinned against, and we have a debt to God. So it's a, it's a marketplace analogy or a, a commercial analogy. And so those two analogies are different, and they require a different sacrifice. So when you sin, you've polluted yourself, you've diseased yourself, uh, you're, you're going to die, but you've also gone into a debt. And so you have the two different offerings that represent those two different things. Once you've offered those first four offerings, then the fifth offering is a peace offering, which is a pleasing aroma to God. The nice thing about the peace offering is you've dealt with all of your sin and your guilt and your shame and all of that, and so you offer this animal and you actually get to eat it with the priest that offers it. And symbolically, what you're doing is you're enjoying table fellowship with God. I will note that unlike the New Covenant, there is no sacrifice for intentional sin in the Old Covenant. The sin offering, the guilt offering, and the burnt offering. So atonement and uh, cleansing, purification, and restitution, those are only for unintentional sins. If you sin intentionally, there is no provision in the sacrificial system for you. Which is why you eventually get the book of Psalms. And David says, there's nothing I can do except throw myself on the grace and mercy of God. There's no sacrifice that I can offer. And yet, so there's one way in which the new covenant is far superior. We know that Jesus died not only for unintentional sins, but also for intentional sins. So Jesus is uh, the full and final atonement for us. He is our propitiation. What is propitiation? The wrath of God is is absorbed in Christ's sacrifice. And just as that animal was entirely consumed on the altar, Jesus is entirely consumed on the cross. And he is roasted in the wrath of God. He has fully devoted himself uh, to God in our place, and we are to, uh, to likewise offer our lives as living sacrifices. That's a grain offering. We devote ourselves to God because of the atonement and propitiation given to us. He has purified us of our uncleanness, uh, our, our sin sickness, and he has paid off our sin debt, the sin offering and the, the guilt offering. And finally, because of those things, we have peace with God. And that's the Lord's table, that we come to enjoy table fellowship with God. So we need all five of these offerings in order to understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Those are the sacrifices. We've got to pick up the pace. Uh, Let's go to sacred time. These are chapters 23 through 25. There's two main parts in the sacred time, and this is the the calendar, the festal calendar, the feasts, 
and then another section on the Sabbath and Jubilee years. Let's take a look at the feasts. There are six feasts, maybe seven. It depends if you combine Passover and unleavened bread. In, in tradition, although they're given separately in Leviticus, the Passover is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So those two go together. So you have Passover and Unleavened Bread. That's number one. Then you have First Fruits. Then you have the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Those are your uh, uh, spring feasts. Then you have your Fall Feasts, which is the, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So if we're going to look at what these are all about, the Passover is given to Israel so that they will remember that they were slaves in e Egypt and that God delivered them out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb. The tenth plague fell, the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts and lintels of the houses of those who believed and obeyed Moses. The angel of death passed over them and then Pharaoh let them go. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days after that where the people were commanded to eat bread with no leaven in it. Why? Because God wanted to say, symbolically, uh, I'm going to deliver you in an instant. You were slaves, and before you, there's time for the bread to rise, you're free. Then we have the Feast of Weeks, or sorry, Feast of First Fruits, which is a harvest festival. And this was practiced on the third day after Passover, and this was to, to give the first portion of your harvest for the spring to God. And then you have the Feast of Weeks, which was sometimes called Pentecost, penta meaning 50, 50 days after Passover to remember that Moses went up on the mountain 50 days after Passover and received the law from God. Those are your fall feasts. The Feast of Trumpets is the beginning of the new year. So you would blow the trumpet and you'd say it's a new year, it's a fresh start, a new beginning. The Day of Atonement was the day just after the, the new year began where God gave his people a fresh start, atoning for their sin in the tabernacle. And then the Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate uh, that God dwelt with them in the wilderness for 40 years. So you have... God in the middle in his tabernacle and then all of the people camped around the tabernacle. So it's dwelling with God. So God set up this festal calendar to remind Israel of his saving presence in their history. So every year they were to remember what God had done for them. The amazing thing about these, as you can guess, is that they are entirely fulfilled by salvation history. So let's start with the spring feasts. Passover is fulfilled by the crucifixion of Christ. He died at the very moment that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it, it, it coincides with the burial of Jesus, so it reminds us that when Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you, that he was buried, and when he said, this is my body, he picked up a piece of unleavened bread. In the scriptures, the leaven is a symbol of sin. So when he says, this is my body broken for you, he's breaking a piece of bread without leaven, a body without sin, and that body died and was buried. But there's another piece to this Feast of Unleavened Bread, which Paul gets to in 1 Corinthians 5, which is that uh, God's salvation comes in an instant. That there, we are all enemies of God, and then before there's time for bread to rise, when our hearts are regenerated, we are now children of God. We were slaves to sin, now we're slaves to righteousness. And it's not a process. 
It's instantaneous. When God calls you, you're born again, and you're a new creature. You have a fresh start. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're, you've been redeemed. You've been delivered. When I taught this in Dubai last week, uh, after the class, a Muslim woman came up to me. Well, she was a Christian, but she had converted from Islam. And she said, thank you so much for teaching about the book of Leviticus. Uh, this is going to help me to preach the gospel and save my family and friends. I said, oh, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for the encouragement. What part was most meaningful to you? And she says, well, that part about the Feast of Unleavened Bread? And I was floored. Like I was expecting maybe the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement. She said, because Islam is a lifelong effort to be saved. And it's a lifelong process and at the end she said at the end of your life you don't even know if you're going to be saved you've tried and it's going to come down to the judgment so to hear that your salvation comes in an instant it's not a process it's it's done that is going to save many muslim people so that was encouraging first fruits on the third day after passover christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who were born uh, raised from the dead Pentecost, this is interesting, on the day that Israel was celebrating the receiving of the law on the top of Mount Sinai, the Holy Spirit descends from holy, 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 and writes the law on the hearts of those in the upper room. So Christ's first coming is fulfilled by the spring feasts, and then there was the summer, the gap between the spring feast and the fall feast, that's exactly like the church age, and then we have the fall feast, the, the, the feast of trumpets that starts the new year. Christ is going to come at the sound of a trumpet and that's going to inaugurate the new age. You have the Day of Atonement and you say, well, isn't the Day of Atonement when Jesus died on the cross? Yes, but the cross is the final judgment pulled back into time. So for those of us who are in Christ, the final, our final judgment occurred on the cross. But the cross then figures into the final judgment. Those who were in Christ on the cross, their names are in the book of life at the final judgment. And they will be atoned for at that time. So the day of atonement is the final judgment, where those who are found in Christ will be ultimately atoned for. And then the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture either of the millennial kingdom or the eternal state. There's debate, but it doesn't matter. The whole point is that God will dwell with his people, either in the person of Christ from Jerusalem in a millennial age, or the full trinity coming down out of heaven into a resurrected uh, cosmos, the new heavens and the new earth, to dwell with his people forever. And we will see his face. So, so Israel, uh, surrounding the tabernacle, is a picture of God's people living with God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. So all of the fall feasts are going to be fulfilled at the return of Christ. Isn't that awesome? And I can't help but think that we've missed something by saying we're not going to celebrate these feasts. Eh, I know we don't need to, but why wouldn't we? That's, I, and I'm not saying that we're going to start, but it's an earnest question. What an amazing way to remember and think about salvation history, all given to us in the book of Leviticus. Any questions about that? We've got to keep to questions, okay, because we have a whole book to get through. But anything unclear? All right. Yes. Yes. 
I have to go back and see. Uh, yeah, I need. To, I don't know why this isn't working. Maybe do you have the clicker, like the? Yeah, if you look at page twenty-six, it's kind of tricky because it floats because they had, a, I believe, a, it was based on a lunar calendar. But the fall feasts are going to fall somewhere in September to October. I think today or yesterday was the Rosh Hashanah, like the. The, the Feast of Trumpets, so we're right there now. And then you have in March and April, and then into May and June for Pentecost, but March and April you have Passover and First Fruits. So it's all on page 26. Is that working? The keyboard is, okay, good. Does that answer your question? Is that, did I understand your question? Yeah. Pardon me? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's not as severe like the swings in the in the seasons aren't as definite, but yeah, they do. So that's the feasts. Now we go down to the year of jubilee. Uh God was very clear that he wanted every 7 years they were not to plow, plant or harvest their fields. And after 7 Sabbath years, that would take you to 49 years. On the 50th year, you would have a year of jubilee. So for year 49 and 50, you had to let the land go fallow, or you don't plant, reap, and harvest. Which, this here is built in to, to wire you for faith. It takes a lot of faith to not plant any food for a whole year, and every 50 years, two years. But what God is saying is, I want to prove to you that I'm going to provide for you. It's not about your ability to earn your, your food, I'm going to give it to you graciously. So that's one way of understanding this. Uh, the other thing about this is when you get to the year of Jubilee, uh, as we're going to see when we get into the book of Joshua, every tribe got a, a tribal allotment of land, and everyone was established as fairly equal as far as what they inherit in the land. But as we know, as time goes, some people are wise with their money, and some people aren't. And so you have some people who go into debt, and you have some people who accumulate wealth. Every 50 years, God says, uh, we're going to go back and reset so that everybody's equal. Your inheritance is not for some to get uber rich and others to be dirt poor. It's not, it's not for one tribe to take over or some families to take over and to become super rich. So this kept everything at an equilibrium. The amazing thing about this is Jesus launched his ministry by quoting Isaiah saying that uh, today I am announcing to you the year of the Lord's favor. And what he was talking about was the fulfillment of the Jubilee is now. And so if the 50th year was the cancellation of all the debts of everybody in Israel and, and the re-giving of the initial inheritance, the, Christ fulfills that by canceling our sin debt and giving us the eternal inheritance that's been stored up for us since eternity past. That's amazing. So our Jubilee is the resurrection of Christ. And if you're in Christ... Your sin debt has been canceled and you will receive your inheritance in the fulfillment of the promised land, which is the new heavens and the new earth. You have a place that God has created just for you in the new heavens and new earth and he is reserving it for you and you will receive it and it will be bountiful and your debts are canceled and you'll never go into debt to God again. That's the year of Jubilee. Moving in now to talk about the priesthood. 
in chapters 8 through 10, we have the introduction of the priesthood. And in chapters 8 and 9, we see the ordination. So you see all of the different sacrifices that are needed. They need to kill uh, a bull, and they need to kill a ram, and, they, and then they need to put blood on the earlobe, their left earlobe and their big thumb and their big toe. That symbolizes that they're covered from head to toe. Like, it, instead of just dripping in blood, symbolically, earlobe, thumb, big toe, they are covered in blood, meaning... They're not worthy to be the high priest or to be the priests. That's what that is all about. And then they have to sit in the tent of meeting for seven days. You know, that's a long seven days. So God uses blood rituals, uh, washing rituals. He clothes them, symbolically clothing them in righteousness. And then uh, um, water rituals to purify them and, and time rituals where they have to wait. So all the different kinds of rituals they have to go through and then they are, are ordained. Then we get to Leviticus 10. There is no plot in the book of Leviticus except for Leviticus 10. And I'm going to read a few verses for you. This becomes really important for the rest of the book of Leviticus. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So what you have to realize about this plot that's just tucked into chapter 10 is the priests have just been ordained. Now what's the role of the priests? Remember, big picture, Israel is a kingdom of priests. So this kingdom of priests has a priesthood. And this priesthood has to mediate on behalf of the kingdom of priests. So their job is to represent this kingdom of priests by getting close to God. And as they're getting close to God on behalf of the nation of Israel, they're getting close to God on behalf of all of humanity. Just keep that in mind. So on the very day that they're ordained for this service... Two of them, the sons of Aaron, the first high priest, just waltz into the tent of meeting. And we're going to see why. It looks like they were probably drunk. And they probably tried to get into the Holy of Holies. Those are the two things that probably happened. We don't know for sure. So what God does is God kills them. And this is why. God says... Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. In other words, the priests that I ordain will have a reverent fear of me. They're not going to treat me casually. They're not going to just treat me like all the other Gentile nations treat their gods. They're not going to manipulate me by the things that they do. I'm in control. I am not to be trifled with. And therefore, by the way that the priesthood treats me that will glorify me in the nation and if the nation has a reverent fear of me then the nations will have a reverent fear of me so if the priesthood treats God casually then the nation will treat God casually and if the nation of Israel treats God casually then the nations will treat God casually and we're not going to get anywhere near God that way And so God makes an example of Nadab and Abihu on that very first day of the priesthood. 
And then there's one time that God speaks to Aaron in the whole Bible. Now, you may find another one. Every time I say that, this is the only time, then somebody says, well, actually. And so, it, that's fine. If you can find it, I would love to know. But as far as I have seen, this is the only time that God speaks directly to Aaron, which means it's really important. Because usually, he talks to Aaron through Moses. So if he does speak to Aaron again, it's not very often. So verse 8, chapter 10, verse 8. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. So that's why we think maybe they were drunk. Warning number one, don't get drunk and then try to be my priest. Okay. And when you go into the tent of meeting, uh, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations. And then verse 10, this is really important. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. There's two categories here that God introduces. Uh, let me explain them to you this way. You're to distinguish between the holy and the common. Nadab and Abihu treated God as if he was common. They just Ah, God is God, I'm going to treat him like any other person. No, no, no. You treat God as holy, which means you revere him, you fear him. Because though he's good, as C.S. Lewis, you know, this is the one that gets brought out all the time, he's not safe. God is good, but he's not safe. So they profaned God by treating him as common, and he killed them. So God says to Aaron, you're going to teach the people the difference between holiness and commonness. When they treated God as if he was common, he killed them, and they fell dead in the tent of meeting, and so they polluted, they defiled God's holy sanctuary because God is life with a capital L. So the tabernacle is to be a place of life. And now, in the tent of meeting, you have two dead bodies defiling God's holy place. Remember, on this end, as you go back toward Eden or into the Holy of Holies, that's life. And this direction, as we sin, we go towards death. Now we have death at the doorstep of God's house. And so the second thing that God says to Aaron is you're also going to teach them the difference between the unclean and the clean. In other words, the difference between life and death. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Just keep that in mind. You've got to teach them about holiness and purity. That's the role of the, of the priests. Because it's in holiness and purity that you understand the character of God and the gospel. You understand what our problem is and how to s solve it. We have defiled our, our, we have profaned ourselves by sin and defiled ourselves by sin so that we are cast out. We need to be purified and sanctified so that we can enter in really important categories of theology for the gospel. We're going to get to that. So that, though, that's in that first part of the priesthood, chapters 8 through 10. Now, we go back to the, the far end, chapters 21 and 22, and, and we see another section about the priesthood. And in chapters 21 and 22, we see all these moral and ritual standards given to the priests. If you're going to be the priesthood, 
within a kingdom of priests, and your job is to mediate the relationship for the kingdom of priests on behalf of the nations, there's a higher standard for you. You have to be very careful about your moral and ritual holiness. And that's what these chapters are about. Now, this is really important for the church, isn't it? Priesthood of all believers. We can't just be like the world if we expect the world to come to God. There's a higher standard. Judgment begins with the household of God. Because it's our job to show the world who God is and how to get close to him. Now what we learn uh, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is our great high priest. So all of these rules about the priesthood are helping us to understand the office of Christ as our great high priest. Now the thing that's interesting about this is in the book of Leviticus, we get, rule, we get the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. Now we have a problem. If Jesus is our great high priest, he's not a Levite. What tribe is, is Jesus from? Judah. So how can we say he's a great high priest? Right, Melchizedek. But this is interesting that God is aware of this, this theological problem and he solves it in Genesis 14. And then he talks about how he solved it in Psalm 110. And then he confirms that he solved it in Hebrews 7 through 9. And the whole idea here is God is establishing the Levitical priesthood not as the ultimate priesthood, but as a picture of the ultimate priesthood. The ultimate priesthood is the Melchizedekian priesthood. So a man by the name of Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, who was the prince of Salem, which is the prince of peace. So the king of righteousness, the prince of peace, Melchizedek, who met with, with Abraham just outside of Jerusalem, uh, he was the original priest, and Jesus, because Abraham tithed to him, we find out that his priesthood is superior because Levi is in the, uh, the body of, of Abraham at that time. So Levi tithes to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek is a superior priesthood to Levi's priesthood. This is long story short. In other words, the Levitical priesthood is but a shadow of the real thing. The real priesthood is the Melchizedekian priesthood. And there's only two priests in the order of Melchizedek that we know of. Melchizedek, which might be uh, a Christophany. It might not have been a historical man. It might have been the pre-incarnate Christ. Might have been a man who would have typological significance. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But the Melchizedekian priest is Jesus Christ. That is, the priest that is the king of righteousness, the prince of peace, is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. That's all I have time for, but that... Do we live under the sacrificial system? Yes, we do. We need to offer a sacrifice. Jesus is the fulfillment of the five sacrifices. Do we live under the, the, the festal calendar of Leviticus? Yes, we do. The first and second coming of Christ. The year of Jubilee. Do we live under a priesthood? Yes, we do. And it's not us. We are the priesthood of all believers. That is, we have an access to God we, are, we, we mediate, we're ministers of reconciliation with the nations, but our great high priest is the Melchizedekian priest, Jesus the Christ. So you don't have any Christian theology without the book of Leviticus. Moving on, purity. So I'm going to condense these, these two parts. So in chapters 11 through 15, you get laws about purity, that is clean and unclean. 
So in chapter 11, you get all kinds of rules about clean and unclean animals. Chapter 12, how do you make yourself clean after becoming unclean after giving birth? And then you have laws about leprosy, so you're unclean if you have any kind of skin disease. Uh, there's laws for how you cleanse yourself if you are a leper. And then you have the uncleanness of houses when you get mildew and mold in your house. And then all kinds of laws about bodily discharges, which is just a really good read. <laughs> Most of those bodily discharges are tied to the reproductive system. Not all of them, but some, a lot of them are. So anything that comes out of your body makes you unclean. So what is that all about? We tend to think, well, that has nothing to do with us. Then in chapters uh, 17 to 20, you have all kinds of rules about uh, social justice and moral holiness. These two together are creating a worldview. And this is the worldview. Let's take a look at it. At the beginning of, oh yeah, I just want to remind you of um, Nadab and Abihu. Why do we have these two sections about purity and holiness? Well, it's because Nadab and Abihu profaned the tabernacle. Profanity is the opposite of holiness. And then they polluted the tabernacle. So God said to the high priest, Aaron, you need to teach your people about purity and holiness. Otherwise, people are going to be dying left, right, and center. So these two sections in the book of Leviticus are a direct result of uh, the malpractice of Nadab and Abihu. So I just want you to see that connection. Here's the worldview. God has separated reality into two main categories. You have holiness on the one hand, and then you have that which is common on the other. The common category is subdivided into two subcategories. You so within common, you have that which is clean and that which is unclean. So effectively, what you have is three categories. You have holiness, clean, and unclean. Now, to add a layer of complexity, within holiness, you have three levels. You have just general holiness, the mountain or the tabernacle and the first room in the tent of meeting. Then you have two times holy, that is holy, holy, which is in the Holy of Holies, or on the top of Mount Sinai, or in the Garden of Eden. And then you have holy, 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 which is in heaven. Same thing can be said for the unclean. There's three levels of unclean. You have just animals. Yeah, okay, you eat an unclean animal, you're, you're unclean. But that's kind of a level one unclean. Then you have leprosy and bodily discharge and, and childbirth, which makes you a level two unclean. And then you have death or touching a corpse, and that's a level three unclean. So that's reality that God has established in the book of Leviticus. And we do a great disservice to ourselves by saying that that doesn't exist anymore. So we go toward the unclean. I know our directions are flipped on this graph from, from what we've been doing, but you move toward the unclean when you sin, when you come into contact with something that is unclean, or, or if you're corrupt in some way. So if, if you, corrupt meaning, well, I, I didn't have leprosy and then I did. I've been corrupted by leprosy. That will move you away from God toward death. Remember, three times holy is life. Three times unclean is death. So all of those things will move you towards death. 
So to go from the category of holy to clean is to be profaned. You profane by moving down a category. And then to go from clean to unclean is to defile. These are important words. So you have the categories themselves, holy, clean, and unclean, and then you have the movement from one category to another. To profane is to go from holy to clean, and to defile is to go from clean to unclean. And then, if you want to move up toward holiness, to go from unclean to clean, you have to be purified. And to go from clean to holy, you need to be sanctified. That's what those words mean. And how are you going to move up a category? You go from, you either purify yourself or sanctify yourself through different sacrifice and ritual that is given in those chapters. I can't stress this enough. This worldview is still operative in the New Covenant. And we have undermined the gospel by saying that there is no such thing as clean and unclean anymore. So burn that into your mind. Any questions about this? Yeah. Uh, I like where you're going. Um, I would say not. Um, Justification in the Old Covenant had no ritual mechanism. Remember I said that the Levitical sacrifices were only for unintentional sins? Justification, then, you have to throw yourself on the mercy of God. That's what David says in in Romans 4. It's believing in the promises of God in the Old Covenant that justify you. Abraham is justified because God said, I'm going to multiply you and give you all these things. Look at the stars of the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay. David knew that there was no sacrifice that could purify him or sanctify him. And so he, in the Psalms, just pours out his heart at God, be merciful, and God is. So justification comes not through the Levitical paradigm at all. But sanctification is intriguing, isn't it? See, this is why it's important. A full biblical theology separates justification and sanctification because sanctification is a fulfillment of the Levitical worldview, which I'm going to use you as a segue to talk about it. Um, So, in Mark 7... Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees and scribes, men who are ritually, Levitically clean and holy. Okay? And they're all upset with Jesus about his disciples eating this and that, eating with unwashed hands or whatever. I forget the exact details. But Jesus rebukes them, doesn't he? And he says, are you kidding me? Do you not understand the book of Leviticus? The whole thing about animals and all of that, there's really nothing uh, intrinsically uh, unclean about an animal. But I have set apart some animals as clean and some animals as unclean to teach you about the categories of clean, unclean, and holy. 
So you gotta, you gotta work with me here. Though all of those things about skin diseases and bodily discharges and animals, those things don't make you unclean, but God gives them as, as lessons to, to establish the categories. And he allows his people to operate with clean and unclean animals, clean and unclean bodily discharges, clean and unclean um, other things in order to teach them that there is such a thing as unclean and clean and holy. And Jesus says, it, it's not about those things. It's about the heart. It's not what goes into the body that makes you unclean. It, what, it's what comes out of the heart. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, I'm abolishing those categories. He's just changing how you uh, move from one category to another. He says, it's, you can be ritually, Levitically clean and holy, and yet be actually unclean. And so this was so offensive to them because they thought that they were clean. They thought that they were holy. They had done all of the things that the book of Leviticus said. They hadn't eaten this animal or that animal. They had done the right sacrifices. They had cleansed themselves the right way. They didn't have leprosy. They weren't living in moldy houses. They booted their women outside of the camp when they were menstruating or, or had given birth. They didn't go to the temple the day that they ejaculated. So all of these things, they said, well, we're, we're, we're clean, we're holy. And Jesus says, no, you're not. So what Jesus effectively does is he puts 100% of the human race into the category of unclean. We have all pro profane God's holy name. We have all defiled ourselves because we're all sinners by nature and by choice. Every human being exists in a category of unclean if we're left to ourselves. So Jesus creates a massive theological problem for these people. You're unclean. And what does it mean if you're unclean? You can't worship God. You can't go into the temple. God, God says you, you might as well be out in the wilderness. You might as well exist in a graveyard. So what's the solution? And this is sanctification. This is why justification and sanctification are two different things. Remember, to, to purify and then to sanctify, you needed to offer sacrifices. You need to do certain washings. You needed to wait a certain amount of time. Well, Jesus fulfills all of that. The ritual to take us from unclean to holy is the cross of Christ. That's the blood ritual that we need. That's the sacrifice that we need. He sanctifies us. He takes us from a category unclean and he puts us in a category of holy, which is why uh, it is so important to me that Christians not say that they are wretched sinners. How can you blaspheme the cross of Christ that way? If he has sanctified you, don't say that you're unclean. It's an offense to him. Now you'll notice that in the New Testament you have holy and common. It's because all of a sudden we're back down to two categories because it's impossible to just be purified. Jesus didn't die just to purify you. He sanctified you. So we jump right over to category of clean. So now humanity exists in two categories. You have unclean people, which are the unsaved people, and you have holy people who've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. So we're holy. 
we've been made new. But notice what didn't happen. Jesus didn't abolish the categories. He just said, food has nothing to do with it. And in Mark's gospel, he says that. He says, you know, food is, he therefore declared all food to be clean. It means, meaning it is irrelevant. The food was used by God to establish the categories. The category is, where's your heart? Now, this is the last thing I want to say about this is, what puts us into an unclean category? It's what comes out from the heart. You'll know I stress a lot that we've got holy hearts. We've been changed in our nature. It's because if, if it's, if it's an unclean heart that puts you in that category, the cross of Christ has to actually transform your heart. You can't exist in a holy category of reality and have an unclean heart at the same time. There's an ontological transformation of your very nature. And what I mean by that is your heart's been circumcised. The, the sin's been cut out and nailed to the cross. The law of God has been written on your heart. You've been given a heart that beats spiritual blood now. Your heart is holy. You've been made obedient from the heart. Which means that you desire righteousness in your heart. You are holy from the heart. Otherwise, this makes no sense. So I love it. It's just awesome. Yes. I think so. And I think uh, if you go back to Leviticus, why is it that when you ejaculate, you're unclean? It's because there's a trillion possibilities for life that didn't actualize. Why is a woman unclean when she has her menstruation? Because you have a potential person that was never conceived and born. That would not have happened without the fall. Every egg would have become a person. It's not sinful. But uncleanness is all those things that have something to do with death. And so why is a woman unclean after childbirth? Well, because... All of the genealogies in the Bible end with, and he died, and he died, and he died. So yeah, you're bringing another generation into the world, but that generation will die. You got to think, in Leviticus, it's, it's not about mor morality, moral righteousness, and moral um, unrighteousness. It's about life and death. It's a it's a paradigm shift for our understanding of the gospel. The gospel is about life and death. Morality is, is a symptom of life and death. It's, it, immorality is just death walking. That's why God hates it. Because it's just, a, a person who's alive just wouldn't do that. It's a manifestation of death. We've got to shift our thinking on that. We've got to keep going too. Uh, we finally get to the Day of Atonement. We're going to make it. Ten minutes. Day of Atonement. So this is the center of the book. Remember, the, the story of the Torah is we start in paradise and we end on the boundary of paradise. We're exiled in Adam to the east. With Israel, we come back into uh, God's paradise by going west across the Jordan River. That's the big picture. You have the books of the, of the Torah, which bring this journey uh, in, in its plot. The center of the Torah is Leviticus. Leviticus is, is structured chiastically, which we've been seeing. And at the middle of this chiasm is the Day of Atonement, 
and the center of the Day of Atonement is verses, or so chapter 16, verses 16 to 20a. And I'm not going to read them for sake of time, but read them. That's, those are the most important verses, I, I believe, in the Torah. You have the high priest representing Israel, representing all the families of the earth in the virtual Eden, making atonement for people so that they can go back to Eden. Now, if we just remember our, our good pals Nadab and Abihu, on the very day that, they, that the priesthood was ordained, Nadab and Abihu were struck dead, and on the very same day, God gave the instructions for the Day of Atonement. So all that is happening all at once. That's the only plot point in this entire book. Ordination of the priests, the death of Nadab and Abihu, God speaks to Aaron about clean and unclean, holy and profane, and then God gives instructions for the Day of Atonement. That's all of the book of Leviticus has happened on, on a single day. So we look at, and, and Moses wants to remind us of this at the very beginning of chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. And then the rest of of the chapter says how it is that the high priest will get into the holy, holy place. The mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, is, we're told, is the footstool of God. So you picture God sitting in holy, 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 and his feet come down into holy, holy. So that's the, the picture. And God says, you don't just come into my throne room, even to my footstool, casually. I'm gonna let you come in once a, once a year, and there's going to be a very specific way that you come into my throne room. That's what the book of Leviticus, or chapter 16, is all about. And it's the Day of Atonement. So we've, we've talked about this a couple of times. Remember, Adam was in Eden. He was exiled to the east. And then Aaron, on the Day of Atonement, moves west. So this is a helpful diagram. Eden in the Holy of Holies. The one thing I haven't said is when Adam was exiled to the east, God stationed cherubim with flaming swords to kill anybody who tries to approach God. This is why when Isaiah was caught up into heaven in Isaiah 6 and he sees these cherubim, they're called seraphim there, but seraphim just means burning ones. So these cherubim are burning angels. They're lethal angels. They are, they are made to kill and guard the holiness of God's sanctuary. So Isaiah is caught up in Isaiah 6, and he says, Oh, woe is me! I'm undone, for my eyes have beheld the king, high and exalted, and I am a man of unclean lips. Nadab and Abihu, ring a bell? I have just waltzed into the very presence of God, and I'm unclean. So he's scared. And he sees the, the, the seraphim, which I'm going to argue are the cherubim. I think they're the same, because they're described very similarly in Ezekiel and Isaiah. In Ezekiel, they're called cherubim, and Isaiah, they're called seraphim. So, the veil, right, that, that guards the Holy of Holies has the cherubim woven into it. 
So once a year, Aaron gets to go west back into Eden. He gets to step around these lethal angels and get into God's presence. That's the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is that we need a high priest to take us there. It's not Aaron, but it's Christ. Now, the the ritual on the Day of Atonement is quite simple. I mean, after you get through all of the, what Aaron has to do to atone for himself. So there's all of that that I'm not going to get into. But the heart of the Day of Atonement is this. Aaron brings two goats to the front of the tent of meeting. And he casts lots for the goats. One goat, the first goat, becomes a sacrificial goat. So Aaron lays his hand, head on the goat, hands on the goat, confessing the sins of Israel. Then he slaughters a goat, drains out the blood takes the blood, puts some of it on, on the altar outside, and then with the blood of the bull, which is sacrificed for himself, he mixes that blood together, and then with the blood, he moves west into the Holy of Holies. Tones for the sin, that's the middle of the Torah, verses 16 to 28. Then he comes out, and with the second goat, he, he takes it, he puts his hands on it, confessing the sins of Israel, and then he takes that goat east. I know on, on the platform I'm opposite as to the up there. Sorry about that. He goes, he takes it east. And that goat symbolically takes the sins of Israel into the unclean wilderness and dies on a, fill, uh, on a hill outside of the camp. Those are the two things that Jesus accomplishes for us. The one goat reminds us of Adam's exile. And what do you have when Christ dies on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you exiled me? He took the cross outside of Jerusalem and died on a hill outside the camp. He's the scapegoat. He carries our sin into exile to the east. And whereas Adam was exiled to the east, Jesus went as far east as you can go theologically. Remember, spatial theology. When he died, he took our sins into the grave. That's as east as you get. The grave is, is as far east, Sheol. And he deposited our sins as far east as you can go. And then on the third day, he was raised back to life, but our sins stayed east. Now he's also the sacrificial goat that he ascends into heaven. And I don't think he had to actually literally take his blood into heaven, but the blood of his cross opens heaven for us. And he goes as far west as you can go, not just to holy, holy, but into holy, holy, holy. So how much does God love us? How much does he separate our sins as far as the east is from the west? The Day of Atonement, both fulfilled by Jesus He took us as far east as we could go and he carries us as far west as we can go. As far away from God as you can be and as close to God as we can be. And Jesus made the full journey on our behalf. That's awesome. This book. I want to close with this very strange passage from the book of Matthew. I think now you have the categories to understand what's going on here. 
Matthew. Twenty-seven, verse forty-five, and following. This is we'll close our time. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? East, scapegoat, dying on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. They just didn't understand his Aramaic. He's saying, my God. And they're thinking, well, maybe he's going to say Elijah. Because they expected Elijah to come right before salvation. And one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So, sacrificial goat. See that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? East. Yielded up his spirit, the blood of his cross. He's, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's taking the thief as far west as you can go. Now look at this. This is the part that I love. Verse 51. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Where the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. The ripping of the curtain, we all know, is significant. Often we think, in these terms, the ripping of the curtain gives us access to the Holy of Holies. There's nothing to stop us. The cherubim have been removed. And that's true. So we now, because the curtain has ripped, we can go west. That's true. Absolutely true. But there's another part that Matthew brings out, and none of the other gospel writers bring it out. That is, the curtain is ripped, and then all of a sudden there's dead bodies that are raised up in graveyards. What's that about? This is what it's about. Not only do we have access into the Holy of Holies, but the Holy Spirit, who is in holy, 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 descends down into holy, holy, rips through the curtain, comes out into the holiness of the temple, and then goes to unclean world, to unclean, unclean world, to the graveyard, unclean, 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 and sanctifies those dead bodies. That's what their resurrection is. It's, it's taking these dead corpses, which is a th- level three unclean, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies them so that they are raised back to life and they are made holy from the grave. That's the gospel. So they had to unfortunately die again because only Jesus has been raised in glory. But the whole point, what God was doing there was saying the death of Christ has now uh, sanctified the most unclean person, a dead body, and given them life. That's the gospel. That's the fulfillment of the book of Leviticus. And I love what it says there. It says... um, Many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Saints is uh, hegios, is the Greek word, which means holy one. So the corpses of the hegios, the holy ones, the corp, the, they, that's an oxymoron. 
the corpses, the three times unclean of the holy ones. Matthew knows exactly what he's doing. They were made holy by the death of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Oh God, I thank you for the book of Leviticus. It is awesome. I pray that you would help us to perceive in deeper measure the the wonder of the gospel and help us to begin to think in in new new ways about what you've done. Help us to to think in terms of life and death and spatial theology uh, and sanctification because you've done it all. We were unclean from the heart and you have made us holy from the heart by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have taken our sins as far to the east as they could go so that we could go as far to the west as we can go. We know that though we will die, unless Christ returns, you will raise us from the dead. God, thank you. I pray that you would bless these men in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great night. I'll stick around if anyone wants to chat, but you're free to go.